Good morning, Lumpur. Good morning, Ajahn Soko. Thank you for <coughs> being available to offer some more uh, Dhamma reflections and answer a few questions. So today is Monday, the 5th of April, 2021. So someone approached me and asked if you would uh, talk about the challenges and the rewards of looking after other people. Specifically, the question came from a junior monk who is looking after a more senior monk, not an elderly person, just someone senior. And I uh, was wondering if you could share your experiences around that and what advice you can offer. Yes, well, it's uh, a good question because in, you know, in monastic life, in this Theravadan <coughs> Vinaya tradition, you've got this agreed uh, form called, you know, they call it Vinaya, about action and speech. And it's about duties that we perform from junior to senior, from senior to junior. So it, it's not just one way kind of performance, but it's clearly designated. So, you know, I found that very helpful because being an American, I was brought up with this strong individualistic approach where, you know, you, you, you assert yourself, self-assertion is, is what you're encouraged to develop rather than a sense of duty or obligation to parents or to teachers. I was never brought up with that influence. It was always about human rights, my rights, myself, my, my self-importance. And, uh, and when I became a monk in Thailand and went to stay with Lumpa Cha in Ubon, you know, it became apparent how you know, when you're living in the Sangha of, of other monks, uh, you know, for like helping Lumpur Cha, caring for Lumpur Cha was always a delight because you projected onto the senior monk, especially somebody as wise and charismatic as Ajahn Chah was, uh, you know, and you feel honored to kind of be able to service, help them in any way they need help and perform your duties as a junior monk. It was no problem. But following several years later, I went to stay at a branch monastery with a senior monk who I didn't respect personally. And uh, so I kept comparing him to Ajahn Chah and then I could see my own personal reactions like he's not worthy of my respect and the kind of arrogance that that I could become aware of through observing how I related to this senior monk that I personally looked down on and didn't approve of. And, uh, and then uh, the Vinaya, I helped clarify that through studying the Vinaya, the discipline about duties of a junior monk to senior monk. It's nothing about whether you like them or agree with them, but it's clearly laid out the duties that, that a junior, newly ordained monk uh, has toward the 
preceptor, towards the acharya, towards the teacher, towards the abbot of the monastery. And suddenly I, you know, I, re I began to see my own conceit and kind of uh, arrogance, thinking that they have to be like Lumpur Cha for me to serve them properly. And I thought, that's really conceited, you know, and I began to look at myself as, as someone who, who made that kind of judgment and believed it, you know, and I didn't want to be like that. I didn't want to be arrogant and conceited. So I used the Vinaya as a way to, to, you know, the traditional form that laid down by the Buddha and the disciples of the Buddha thousands of years ago and referred to that about duty, which has nothing to do with one's personal feelings about uh, the senior monks or junior monks. So it's a way of watching yourself, how, you know, to listen to yourself, even to your self-conceit, you know, your own critical mind about what you think this monk is like and whether you respect him or don't respect him or he's too fussy or too difficult or talks too much or doesn't pay much attention. You know, it's, all these are opportunities to observe these kind of habitual uh, self-reactions to, to experience. And in this way, I found the Vinaya very helpful because it, it, it you know, you realize that even if the senior monk was, was, you know, not worthy of respect in any way, according to Vinaya, you still showed that respect in a proper way and, and helped in, in the ways, dutiful ways that junior monk should. And I found a great joy in that, kind of relief that, that, you know, my life as a monk wasn't based on personal liking or disliking, approving or disapproving, but on a structure that I inherited through being ordained as a bhikkhu, as a fully ordained Buddhist monk, that I could use to reference experience with, to see, to get to the roots of, of a lot of uh, unrecognized arrogance and conceit that I, I didn't recognize when, when I was serving Lumpur Cha, those kind of thoughts never occurred to me. So I encourage monk, junior monks, senior monks to, to, you know, it's not a game we're playing in which we, we assume these roles and we have to play a game with each other or we just have to blindly submit to uh, discipline and seniority or our, you know, our position in Sangha, but it's a way of referring to the present moment to see the sakyaditi, the, the self-view, the ego that is latent and hidden sometimes in ordinary circumstances. So in the balance, and, and just to maybe broaden the, uh, the, the scope of this question. So we started off looking at it in terms of junior monks looking after, helping to look after senior monks and the recipro reciprocal duties. But you find this kind of dynamic as well 
in uh, in lay life in any aspect of life like between parents and children between when the children are young and there's maybe a sense of what we're owed or how people owe to behave how my parents should be or how my children should be but then also later in life looking after elderly parents who start needing care and uh, we come up against these uh, duties one could call them that one can perform to assist each other and yet we've got all these human sides that human flaws if we could call them that way that uh, are part of the picture too so in the balance what would you say is the reward like on one side looking after Ajahn Shah is very rewarding because he was such a charismatic person looking after an incredibly sweet-natured mother can be very rewarding but then it seems like you're talking about some other side sense of satisfaction that you derive from taking on these challenges of looking at what arises in one's own heart when one is looking after someone that may be difficult to look after how do, how do you how do you recognize the challenges and how do you make it satisfying to address those challenges well the same theory applies to lay life because parents are our seniors you know and you start you know even people have all kinds of reactions to the suggestion of duties to parents uh, duties are are not uh, highly regarded in modern life in the worldly modern world materialistic worldview but uh, you know just out of compassion and uh, generosity these are qualities to develop and you know uh, to do the best one it can and, and with those who are Oh, in developing awareness with their daily lives, it's important to recognize the resentment you might feel having to look after a difficult parent. Uh, it's like this, you know, you're not trying to perform duties just blindly out of some kind of blind sense of having to do it and kind of gr grit your teeth, grin and bear it attitude, but you know, the, the opportunities to see uh, hidden resentments, uh, uh, aversion that one might feel or memories that might arise, you know, we feel not loved or not properly taken care of by our parents. And these are mental states that can arise. When we feel we have, we have a lot of love with our parents, it's much more easy to look after them. But difficult people are also, as a, you know, you learn a lot, really a lot from that, having to watch your own resentment, the, the feeling of these people endlessly demand or fussy about everything and you don't like it. And, and you can observe that, you know, when you try to suppress those feelings, then you experience what they call burnout. Carers burning out because they're they're trying to be stiff upper lip and carry on performing their duties, and at the same time feeling a lot of bitterness, resentment, anger, and uh, you know then they try to suppress it or they let it out on getting drunk or drugs. You know, one way of 
releasing uh, psychological traumas, but mindfulness is a skillful way to deal with it. Because we all in life have to, you know, live with in society, you know, monastics, even though we leave the society in terms of not participating as laymen, we, we're very much connected to the societies for the four requisites for food, for example, or for robes and shelter, medicine. And then we also feel a sense of gratitude when we think of our parents nurtured us, took care of us when we were helpless infants, you know, mother gave us birth and, and uh, you know, she had to change our nappies and, and uh, feed us and, and uh, guide us, you know, through childhood. Uh, and so we start, you know, seeing that in, the, in one's old age, one needs to be taken care of almost like an infant because you you can't you don't have that you know the older you get the less you're capable of taking care of yourself and i found as a monk you know in thailand it was very easy because the thai society is based on this respect for elders so even when i was 60, when I was still, you know, quite healthy and vigorous, you know, junior monks would want to help me down the steps and and they started calling me Lung Pa, which means uh, noble father. And, you know, I was, I could see the ego not, you know, not wanting to be considered somebody's father or not wanting some monk's help to go down steps like, you could hear your mind saying, I can, I can do this, I don't need you. And it's kind of a, you know, the arrogance of youth and middle age and the desire not to surrender to the, the realities of age that take place quite naturally. Now when people call me Lumpa, it's like, a, you know, it's like uh, something I revere. It's a beautiful thing to be called. I'm not thinking, you know, Ajahn Samedo, and I'm not old at 86, 87, yeah, you know, I'm in the great-grandfather category now. <laughs> so, you know, I, you know, sit back and enjoy life, you know, and learn from it as best you can under the particular situations you find yourself in. So earlier you were mentioning how you found joy in overcoming that challenge, like, because it's, that's not what people immediately think of when they're looking after some, either a junior monk looking after a, some more difficult senior monk or uh, someone looking after a grumpy, curmudgingly old parent. What kind of these resentments that you talk about that we need to allow into consciousness, how, that, how do you go from experiencing resentment to experiencing joy? Well, joy is natural state of conscious awareness. You know, when you let go of your own sense of separate self, the ego, the uh, my rights and my views and my opinions, when you see through that, then 
what's left, you know, what remains is a sense of joy of being. It's natural. It's not a created state that you kind of, you know, try to generate. It happens when you give up, when you let go of life, when, you know, duties are performed accordingly to time and place. And, and you find, and then you can find great joy in performing them because that's what we do. You know, that's the way we function as, as a society, as a Sangha of monks or as a society of lay people. And we're not asking senior monks to be arahants or wise and compassionate. When, you know, if we are, then then we're, you know, we're making demands on somebody else and we're judging them according to our own views, which we can see is conceit, you know, it's ditimana, it's a sense of, I know what's right and they, they don't have it right, they've got it wrong. The same with parents, you know, taking care of one's elderly parents is, is something to rejoice in. But you can't make yourself just rejoice because I, I advise you to do so, but by observing what happens. So you're not burning out with resentment, suppressed feelings and anger and resentment. You're, you know, you're accessing that, you're observing that, you're the witness to conceit, to self-conceit, self-views, clinging to opinions, and re carrying resentments from the past into the present, uh, and you begin, and you're developing wisdom. Wisdom's guiding you rather than just uh, a blind sense of duty and and compulsion of having to do things because uh, you feel you have to. It, it's got much more free a sense of freedom and and honor involved than in just performing one's duties, you know, grin and bear it style. So there's a sense of not just doing it for the other person, but doing it for oneself in a way. Yeah. Works both ways. You know, you, you find that you really appreciate, like being old, you really appreciate the consideration you get from, from younger people. Because in the modern society, materialistic Western society, old people tend to be ignored. You know, they people don't want to talk to to an old man or an old woman. And one time I was uh, when Tanjokun Panyananda was visiting England, we were taking him up north to our branch monastery in Northumberland in Harnham. And he wanted to stop in the city of York, which has a, a famous cathedral, York Minster. So uh, we arrived in, you know, early in the evening in, in York. We went to the York Minster and Tanjakun Panyananda, you know, we walked with him into the um, cathedral, which is very beautiful, impressive bit of architecture, you know, so, you know, I was very glad to go there because I really love that building. And uh, Chao Kun, Tan Chao Kun Panyananda would go around, you know, looking at 
the stained glass windows and the icons and so forth, admire the architecture, and then you see an old person and go up to them and greet them in his kind of strange English, and they all respond with great happiness that somebody pay attention to them. So I, I saw a couple of old women sitting on a bench inside the basilica. And uh, so I went over to them and said, good evening, how are you? And they were, they were said, oh, you've made our day, you've spoken to us, you know, and I felt <laughs> so, so sorry for them, you know, that they, you know, they, they just look like very nice old people sitting in church, you know, where uh, ordinarily they just expect to be ignored and overlooked. And uh, how just a, a simple greeting like, how are you, can make their day. I was quite moving and quite impressed with that. That was very beautiful. <laughs> but I remember one story you told me that just in, in this, uh, in terms of doing things, because they're good and because we feel happy doing them, even though the person towards whom we perform certain gestures or duties may, in all appearances, not seem worthy, so to say. You told me once the story of this woman who would, uh, a Sri Lankan woman, I think, or a Thai woman, who would pay respects to her husband every observance day. And a husband who otherwise wasn't necessarily very faithful to her or didn't treat her very nicely. Yes, that was a, a story I read in a Thai magazine years ago. And it impressed me because in, in Thai culture, you know, the old Buddhist culture and in, in uh, Thailand, the duties to wife to husband, husband to wife are clearly laid out. And, uh, and a proper Thai woman, you know, brought up in the traditional style, knows her duties and performs them. And this particular story was about a, a Thai woman whose husband was, was, you know, not very respectable and didn't treat her properly, had other women on the side. And, and uh, his wife would every fortnight go and bow to him and ask for forgiveness, perform her duty to her husband. And uh, I told this story to a group of Western people and they were indignant. They thought that was terrible, that he should bow to her and she should bow to him. And so this is, these are the kind of thoughts that are important to observe in ourselves because, you know, and, and by its own personal judgmental conditioning, I would have agreed, you know, she was worthy of respect and he should bow to her and ask for forgiveness. That's, that's how it should be according to an ideal. But, you know, one, I couldn't help but admire a woman who performed her duties with, you know, a sense of integrity, not a sense of, you know, him, uh, just bowing down because of it's what you're supposed to do or because her husband expected it, but because 
she found great joy in doing what was right, considered right in her relationship to, to a husband that she probably didn't respect in terms of personal feelings. And so this is just a way of reflecting that, how personal relationships can be. And, you know, in marital, you know, nowadays it's about partnerships rather than husband and wife. And, you know, the whole uh, relationship has changed from duties to equality, you know, you do this and I do that. And, and we share everything according to what's fair and just and equal is very idealistic, you know, and, you know, it has its own, you know, as an ideal, it's, it's very beautiful. But as the reality of here and now in relationships from one individual human being to another, uh, to, to get along, to learn to live with, with people, whether they're easy to live with or difficult, it, you learn, you know, what's important is to develop wisdom in regard to it, rather than just, uh, you know, become burnt out, negative and resentful without understanding what's happening to yourself. So in these various relationships and uh, acts of kindness or help that we perform towards each other, rather than coming from a place of uh, being happy because I'm doing it for someone I'm inspired by, I mean, that may be the case, but to come back to doing it because it's good and right and learning how to derive happiness from that, which kind of gives you then freedom from whether they are inspiring or not, whether it's a husband, a wife, a teacher, a parent, a child. Would you say that's right? Correct? It's, you know, it's, you're not demanding somebody else be ideal for you. You know, that's conceit, isn't it? If I say, I want you to be like me and do everything I think you should do, that is, you know, that's arrogance and conceit. And, uh, you know, living in a sangha of monks and nuns, you know, you find, you know, each, each individual is different from the other. And I used to judge them by my own standards of what I held as, as right and good. <clears throat> and then those that didn't fit into, to what I thought, I thought was something wrong with them. And, and in the early days, I tried to adjust them to make them fit into my ideal monk or nun, and it didn't work. You know, it was getting me nowhere except a lot of resentment and anger from them and frustration with, with myself. And then, you know, I realized, you know, just using Ajahn Chah as a kind of role model, you know, the way he took on in his Sangha some very difficult individuals uh, and uh, both in the nun section and in the monks. And he, you know, he, he wasn't expecting them to conform to his ideal of what should be, but he was encouraging them to be themselves, to, to, to observe the way, to observe the way you are. Like me, when I was the first Western monk at, with Lumpur Cha, he had 
enough, you know, he had the intuition to accept me as I am, which I felt a great sense of freedom because I never felt that with any other, with my parents or with any other person, you know, somebody just accepting me as I am. Whereas Lung Po Chai always felt, you know, and he could, even though he he'd never traveled abroad or he was not highly sophisticated or educated, he understood human nature. And he, and he advised me how to work with the way I am, with my, my frustration at learning to speak Thai and fitting into a totally different environment, way of life, into monastic form, you know, which was, you know, jumping into the deep end of the pool and, and floundering about, you know, he didn't know how to swim yet, but you had to survive. And he, he really, you know, tuned into that. So a lot of the things I did, kind of stupid reactions to, to my experience in the first year that I spent with Lung Phuong Cha, he more or less overlooked, where he wouldn't have with Thai monks. I don't think he would have, you know, because the relationship was different. They, they, their, their sense of the, themselves, their, their relate, their duties, their whole structure, uh, moral structure was based on Buddhist precepts and Vinaya. So that was, uh, you know, that was taken for granted. But with, with the Westerner, first Westerner, who never studied Vinaya or, uh, you know, had, had, had a lot of faith in Buddha Dhamma, uh, you know, I think I, I felt such admiration for the, for the kind of humor and way he, led me to reflect on my own reactions. He wasn't telling me how I should feel about things, you know, that I should respect the senior monks or that I should be selfless and give in. He wasn't giving me all the, the advice that I was expecting, but encouraging me to observe what I was actually feeling, the kind of resentment or frustration that was quite common in the first year when you and you don't know what's happening most of the time. So now that you've brought up these uh, experiences in the old days with Lumpo Cha in the context of our previous topic here, if I may just switch over to that, but after that first year, when you did start getting used to the new forms, did, how did that change? Did he start, when he saw that you were adapting and starting to find your grounding there, did he start treating you a little tougher sometimes? Well, I, I developed such a kind of trust during that first year that I was prepared for whatever he was going to, you know, I trusted it, that even if he scolded me or insulted me that I would, you know, I'd see that as something to look at, my own embarrassment or resentment. I know how to, I knew how to use my my conditioning, how to observe it. And the, you know, the way Lumpo Cha taught meditation, I could observe myself 
my my reactions to things, my conceit, my uh, my American conditioning. You know, because in Americans you have very different social conditioning. I was brought up as a strict Christian, so I had, you know, my early conditioning experience with life was based on Christianity and American white middle class American values. You know, so that's the the program that I went to stay with Lung Pa Chao with that program. You know, that's all I knew. That's the what I identified with. And then, you know, going into into a, a Thai Buddhist monastery in a remote part of Thailand, you know, and you know, I was brought up in a kind of middle class city life. You know, I wasn't a country boy. Uh, so, you know, you're brought up with things you just take for granted. But in Wapapong, you know, your very life was very basic. You know, the, the first kuti, the first meditation hut that was given to me was too low. The ceiling was too low. And I kept banging my head on the beams and the door frames on all the, the kutis, on all the chalets were all low for Thai monks who are not very tall. And, uh, and, and fortunately it had, you know, the, the kuti had a tin roof, which was a luxury in those days. Having a tin roof was, was, you know, was safe from the rain and so forth. So, but it made a lot of noise when it rained too, you know, so, and sleeping on a brass mat on a, on a bare wooden floor. I'd never done that as a lay person in America. So <clears throat> I learned to adjust to, uh, you know, and, and it was, wasn't, you know, I quite enjoyed it because I found out, you know, a lot of things that were, I thought absolutely necessary were unnecessary. So we didn't have electricity or think we had to draw water from a well in a bucket and, and, uh, life was very, you know, on a very basic, primitive survival level. But to me, it was inspiring because I learned I could do that, that I wasn't habituated to a, to a high standard of life that I had to have with me all the time. I could adapt. I found myself quite adaptable to different situations. Um, so you you know, you've, you've, you're, it's important to realize that, that monastic life can be based on ideals. You know, what a perfect monk is, perfectly mindful, compassionate, uh, filled with metta and always uh, developing meditation and developing the path. I mean, so you have monastic ideals, you know, ideals of perfection for the form of the bhikkhu, the traditional Theravada bhikkhu, which I found inspiring. <laughs> the whole bhikkhu Ambience was very inspiring, especially the Tutonga style, uh, the, the forest tradition uh, that Lumpur Cha 
lived with. I found that very inspiring. The ideal Dutanga Bhikkhu, alms mendicant. So I, you know, I <clears throat> felt inspired to live that way, which brought me to, to, the, to the desire to stay with Lumpo Cha. You know, so I, you know, so I, it would send me off to branch monasteries that I didn't want to go to, but I did anyway. I'd go where, where he assigned me and observe my own resentment or not wanting to go, began to feel free from it, from just getting things done. When Rumpacha said, you go to this branch monastery, I just go. And if I resented it, I could be aware of that. So that's where the previous questions and this one kind of come together is uh, like the freedom that you discover in this adaptability is the same, gives you the same joy as the freedom you discover in being able to do the right thing and looking after someone, even though you might not be inspired. Yes, you find your true nature. That freedom. You know, underlying all the grasping, clutching at conditions, all the ignorance that we are conditioned with, underlying that is, is happiness or joy. The natural state of non-attachment, you know, which is a relaxed presence here and now, total relaxation, trust, and openness, is, is a reality of joy, which is always here and now. It's not, you know, I cultivate joy as some kind of practice. It just happens from releasing myself from the bondage of my ego, my views and opinions, my cultural, social conditioning, uh, my fears and self-consciousness and and, uh, you know, whatever form it takes, just being released from grasping those conditions and, and reinforcing them to just trusting in the open awareness of the present is liberation, freedom. A final question. Someone was asking what it was that sustained you through the difficulty of that early year or the early couple of years in Thailand, would you say it was that? That joy from this liberation? Joy and... I just loved the life, really. You know, it was... Uh, I couldn't think of a better way to live my life. You know, I was 31 years old when I ordained, so I lived long enough, experienced enough you know, and, uh, to realize the kind of emptiness of my life. It had no meaning, no purpose. And, and I began, as I turned 30, I began to really wonder what, you know, what's the point of living? Because it, where when I was 20, I had a kind of goal to reach and a kind of ideal to, to look toward. By the time I was 30, that idealism had collapsed and disappointed and thought, you know, I, by the time I was 30, I would be this kind of marvelous individual, but I wasn't. 
I was a kind of depressed, miserable, un, unhappy man. And I thought on my 30th birthday, I thought, am I going to have to live 30 more years with these mental states, with these same boring thoughts, these same reactions to experience? Is that, you know, is that what I have to look forward to is just 30 more years of this? And, you know, that was what inspired me to investigate Buddhist, uh, Buddhist monasticism. You know, being in, in Saba at the time on North Borneo, I was very close to, you know, a good holiday destination was Thailand, you know, a thoroughly Buddhist country. And I was impressed, you know, I've never, I'd never been in a, in a real Buddhist country before, you know, where the king and 95% of the population were Theravadan Buddhists, you know, so I thought, and it never been a colony a European, of, a, of a European country or any other nation. So it was quite unique. And so I found it, you know, a kind of mysteriously fascinating country to live in. And it's a very welcoming country. So I, you know, when I showed an interest in Buddhism, doors opened wide for me in Bangkok before I ordained. Because I was just, you know, I was teaching English at a university in Bangkok and, and, um, I'd mix with other expatriate Buddhists. But when I decided to become a monk, you know, then the Thai Buddhists, you know, they opened their doors wide more than everyone wanted to help me. You know, so I always kind of felt this gratitude towards Thai people in general because you know, I thought the whole nation, you know, millions of people want me to become a monk, want me to become enlightened. You know, that's more than my parents want. <laughs> so, you know, over the years, I mean, in my early life in Thailand, it felt this incredible sense of gratitude where, the, where you were fed very well every day and uh, given, you know, given a lot of respect from the lay people and encouragement, endless encouragement to meditate. Thank you very much, Sampal. My pleasure.